time. We've got Halloween coming up here uh, next weekend. And we're here reading about demoniacs, demons, legions of them. And it's also fitting with all the craziness that's going on in the world around us. We hear about one who is verifiably crazy through his demon possession. The story of the gathering demoniac or burgessing demoniac is it's told in the, the Gospel of Matthew. It's also told in the Gospel of Mark. We hear this Gospel twice a year. It's a very frequent Gospel between uh, the, the two different Gospel accounts of the year. And uh, Deacon jokes around that almost every time that this Gospel reading comes around, he happens to give a homily. So you may have noticed the last few years it's always been deacon. So I don't think I can get to come up. I'll give the homo today. But we have this gospel twice a year. It should be of note to us. Out of all the different gospel stories that the church could have given us on the, the Sundays of the year, we hear this two times. Once from the gospel of Matthew sometime around summer, and then once from the gospel of Luke here in the fall. And we hear this because it is a, a gospel story that is hard for us and we have to dig through a little bit to really see how it benefits us. Because of course we can hear this as a story with this demon-possessed man or two men in the Gospel of Matthew. Christ comes and heals them and we say this is an amazing miracle. But what does this have to do with us? And today it feels like the whole world has become the gathering demoniac. People are going around yelling, saying whatever they want, however they want, totally unrestrained. The Gospel of Mark describes the poor man this way. When Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles broke into pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. A very pitiable, lamentable person, who everyone around him had totally abandoned. They had tried to chain him up at first, and then they just left him. And so he was crying about day and night. Now we can all point to people that we can think of in our contemporary society and accuse them of being demon-possessed. Just going around yelling whatever they think, spewing out their views on this or that, offending everyone around them. It's those people over there. They're the crazy ones. Whether we want to say it's Trump or Biden or Pete Brown or whoever else out there. We can always find people that we can point the finger at and say, they're the ones who are not in the right mind. But in reality, we are all the gathering demoniac. Each of us must fight against our own ego and turn to Christ. But I have to tell you, this is not the way of the world. We look around and we can see that it is not the way of the world. St. Anthony the Great once said, a time is coming when men will go mad and they will see someone who is not mad, and they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like us. 
times to come. We are in a time when so many people, so many of us, have gone crazy and become enslaved by the passions. Like the man in the gospel, we're roaming about unrestrained. We're crying out to those around us, to those on social media. We're yelling at our own TV. How many of us have done that in frustration? We have so many ways in which we are just crying out, completely possessed by the passions that are permeating our society. In our fervor, we continually are breaking our self-restraint, breaking forth from that peace that we could be having to issue forth another volley of anger, another volley of judgment, all of it brought about by our own fears. We're not careful, instead of being the demoniac, what we like to face. We need transformation. Oh. Is that better? Hi, everyone. Let me start at the beginning. <laughs> Just kidding. So, forgive me, my mic was not on, so just you in this room got a special message. <laughs> but the point, nonetheless, is that we need transformation. We need transformation because if we're honest with ourselves, we are the demoniac. And if we're not honest with ourselves, we will become those pigs that are running down the hill to their own death. Rather, Instead of saying we need a new transformation, I could say it another way. We need a new master. Because when we are overthrown by the passions, when we have anger and fear and judgment and all of these things going on in our lives, we have a master. And that master is a cruel master. We see that in the story of the demoniac, how lamentable he is. And we see that in what those demons do to the pigs when they have their chance. We have a master, and he is not a nice master. We need to turn rather to the master, the one who says that he is meek and lowly, who says to us, invites us to take his yoke upon us. We need to be sitting at the feet of Christ, clothed and in our right mind. This is the most poignant passage in all of the gospel reading, is that the demoniac, by Christ's great miracle, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. So I'd like to expand that phrase a little bit for us. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is what we can do. God will not put us at his feet. We must put ourselves at the feet of Christ. And this is humility. It's self-emptying. It might even at times feel like Nihilistic, like, what am I if I keep emptying myself out before God? Who am I? And yet this is the way that we find out the true self that is in us. St. Anthony the Great also said, once in a vision, he saw the snares of the enemy spread out over the world. And he groaned out saying, what can get through such snares? Then he heard a voice saying to him, humility. Humility is the way that brings us low. And when we are down low, we are impervious to the evil one's assaults. It's only when we bring ourselves low that this becomes possible. Humility is to say, I am susceptible. Because what we want to say is, I'm not susceptible. 
I alone can figure out what is right and what is wrong and who is right and who is wrong, and I can be the judge of everything around me. The humble person says, I can be the judge of nothing. I am the one that I need to work on, and everyone else around me is nothing compared to the things that I need to work on inside myself. We had a more recent saint, Saint Ephraim of Katonakia, who was just proclaimed a saint just a year ago or less. And he said, divine grace is retained through humility and by giving thanks to God. The humility of the words, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Those are the words of the prodigal son. We remember that the prodigal son was the one who went away. He came back in repentance and he said, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Make me a hired servant. This is the voice of humility. It says, I'm not worthy of anything. The joyful thing is that God wants to give us everything. So it's not like this self-hating thing to say, I'm not worthy of anything. Because God says, as in the prodigal son, what does he do? He doesn't say, okay, you can be my hired servant. We'll just do that instead. He brings him in as his son. He restores him. And humility is that way. So out of this phrase, sitting at the feet of Christ, clothed and in his right mind, our part is sitting at the feet of Christ. That's what we can do. Being clothed is a gift from God. As St. Paul says famously in Corinthians, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This hymn that we sing in the liturgies at certain times of the year, we sing it at the baptism service. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that word put on, the Greek word, is literally the word that we use for clothing. So we have put on Christ. We have clothed ourselves in Christ. In Colossians, St. Paul also says, You have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Each time that uh, a deacon or a priest or a bishop is vesting, putting on the, the vestments that we wear, there are prayers for each vestment. And this vestment at the bottom, this robe, is called the stikarion. And it symbolizes our baptismal robe because each of us were baptized and had this robe of, of brightness that was put upon us. And it was symbolized by a white robe. The prayer that we say with this vestment, when we put it on, it comes from Isaiah and it goes, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with a garment of righteousness and covered me with a robe of gladness. He has crowned me as a bridegroom and has adorned me as a bride with jewels. We have been clothed. In our baptism, we have been clothed in a garment of righteousness. But our baptism is both a completion and the beginning of a whole journey. Much like marriage, we can understand that better in marriage. In marriage, we say at the marriage service, the two become one flesh. And yet, at the same time that is true, over the coming decades of their marriage, more and more they become one. They become one. And so this journey of growing into oneness never ends. This is what our baptism is. Some would say, well, you're baptized in Christ, you're saved. Or you say a prayer and you're saved. This is not reality. This is not the reality of a relationship. In a marriage we see, if we said you just got married, then you're good. You're married forever. 
You never have to talk to the person again. You never have to have a relationship. It's legal. It's done. This is not how we should treat our Christian faith. When we are baptized, that is both a completion and the beginning of an entire journey into unity with Christ. In Corinthians, St. Paul talks about our yearning for eternal life in relation to our clothing. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he's talking about our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our eternal body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we, are in this, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that, Im- that mortality may be swallowed up by life. It's a beautiful image. Mortality being swallowed up by life, being clothed completely in eternal life. And once more in Corinthians, St. Paul says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Death has been overcome by Christ. And as we put on Christ, we put on immortality. We put on that clothing that will never fade, which is our eternal life. This is something that we receive from God in as much as we, as the gospel says today, are sitting at the feet of Christ. As we sit at the feet of Christ, we are clothed. We don't clothe ourselves, we are clothed. St. Ephraim, who I mentioned earlier, also said this, It is indeed very sad that we ignore the great treasure we have, the treasure we obtain during holy baptism, meaning being adopted by God, because as St. Paul says, we have this treasure in clay jars. This is why we, why we so easily become indolent and indifferent, so easily condemn, and in one word, this is why we fall so easily, because we forget that we have been clothed. Christ has clothed us. We are not to be of this world. We are not to be like this world. So easy to condemn, as St. Ephraim says. And how much condemnation exists everywhere at all times right now. And that last is to be in his right mind. So we have kneeling at the, sitting at the foot of Christ, which is what being clothed, which is what Christ does to us. And the result of all of that is being in our right mind. When we say in his right mind, what does that mean? What's the opposite? Being in your wrong mind? Have you ever noticed we never say that? We never say, oh, he's in his wrong mind. We say he's not in his right mind. And then we say he is in his right mind. It reminds me, my, I'm a twin, and my twin brother is right-handed, so he would always tease me because I'm left-handed. So I learned that, that joke. Left-handed people are the only people in their right mind because you use the opposite side of your brain. Anyway, what does it to mean to be in our right mind? 
When we say someone is not in their right mind, what is that? Maybe we can better understand what it is to be in your right mind if we think about what it means when someone is not in their right mind. When do we say that about a person? We say that when someone is not, we would imagine that they're not in control of themselves, that they are in some way behaving in a way that is not them, that they are overtaken, they're enslaved by something. And so we say in compassion, he's not in his right mind, as in he's kind of overtaken by this thing, and that will go away, and then he will be back to being in his right mind. So when we say someone is in their right mind, we mean that they're no longer encumbered or clouded over by things. We mean that they're no longer enslaved. So that's the English. But the Greek is a lot more poignant. The Greek is, comes from the word sophrosini, which is a nice big Greek word to say. In the gospel it says sophronunda. Sophrosini is an ancient Greek word, and it's actually like the pinnacle of what a good person is. It implies excellence of character, it implies soundness of mind, it also implies temperance, moderation, prudence, purity, self-control. You hear all those words and you think that's pretty much the opposite of the demoniac. He wasn't temperate, he didn't have moderation, he wasn't having self-control, he wasn't in his right mind. And so now, he has the opposite of that. In the ancient Greek understanding, Sophrosyne was the opposite of hubris. Hubris is where you do things brashly and for your own desire. But the word actually still goes deeper than that because Sophrosyne, it's also the word where we get the name Sophroni, like Saint Sophroni, a recent saint. It comes from two parts. Bear with me a little bit here. Sos and phronima. These two come together to be sophrosini. And sos is that root that we get for all of the words about saving. Sosonimas, that means save us, O God. Eleisonimas. I'm sorry, that's not a good example. Sotiria, any words that we have in the church, savior, all of these words come from that same root of being saved. So we have saved, and then this word phronima, which is like a way of being. Put those together, it doesn't really come out as, what did I describe, moderation or soundness of mind. What it really means at its very root is a saving way of being. This is what sophrosini means. It means that everything that we're doing is towards what is towards our salvation, towards what is bringing us eternal life. So this is that rich word that in English is translated as being in his right mind. It's a word that we actually have a lot in our prayers, but it's a hard word to translate. And so one of the translations that's often used is chastity. So in the prayer of St. Ephraim that we say during Lent, we say, but grant to me, your servant, the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love. And that word chastity is actually this word sophrosini. And when we translate it as chastity, that's even harder because then we're thinking of all kinds of strange things about lust and whatever else. What it really means is a saving way of being. Everything that we do is focused on salvation. And as everything that we do is focused on salvation, then the transformation comes in our lives. 
So this is what it means in that little gospel phrase where it says, sitting at the feet of Christ, clothed and in his right mind. It means that we are invited by Christ to humble ourselves so that then he can clothe us, so that then we can become transformed into this beautiful word, sophrosini, which means that everything that we do is towards salvation. And as we do that, we notice the demoniac, he didn't just go and live by himself pleasant with his salvation. Christ said, go and tell the great things that God has done for you. So he was sent out into the world and transformed others through that. This is what our world needs right now. It needs transformation desperately. And it doesn't come from us dictating to others what they must do. It comes from us being transformed. We have a very important role as Christians in another week and a half when the election comes. And that role is to be at peace. We must be at peace with whatever outcomes come into the world. The world needs our peace. Right now, we haven't already been cultivating that. And so we know, as I said that, be at peace on election day. Many of you are thinking, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. How could I be at peace? We must be at peace if we find out that Donald Trump is the president again. We must be at peace if we find out that Joe Biden is the president. We have to be at peace. So if you know in your heart of hearts, as with myself, that I'm not yet at peace with either of those outcomes, then I have work to do. I have work to do, which means to humble myself before Christ so that he can clothe me in his peace. And I will mention this again as we come to this election. It's very important that we transform the world around us by transforming ourselves. Amen. Let us all say with our whole soul, with our whole mind, let us say. Lord Almighty God of our fathers, we pray to you, hear us and have mercy. Have mercy on us, O God.